Hello, this is Todd O'Brien, your host, and welcome to Evolve the Entrepreneur Mindset. My name is Steve Zahn, and my superpower is storytelling about the positive impact of culture on business results. My guest today is a seasoned founder and entrepreneur. He co-founded Digital Think, an enterprise-scale cloud company in the dot-com era. Having its initial public offering in February of 2002, they were able to survive the bust and were sold to Convergys in 2004 for $120 million. He is currently the president at Procore, a construction software-as-a-service unicorn, where he oversees human resources, learning and development, facilities and real estate, and information technology. He has a strong focus on the creation and scaling of positive workplace culture as a sustainable competitive advantage for achieving superior business results. He is experienced in capital raising from angel rounds to IPO. He currently lives in Santa Barbara, California with his family. Please welcome to the show, Steve Zom. Great to be here. You know, I would love for you to take us back to your first entrepreneurial journey. And what really made you take that first leap? I think, you know, for me, being an entrepreneur was about being able to get into technology, being able to work at a software company. I came out of university as a history major and then went on to get my MBA at University of California, Berkeley. When I came out of business school in the early 1990s, it was impossible to get into the software world if you did not have an engineering degree of some type. Hmm. And I don't mean, you know, to be a coder, I mean to work in the marketing department, to work in business development, to work even on a sales team. It really helped to either have uh, experience, which a lot of MBAs have classroom time, but not experience, or you had to have that engineering degree. And so when I first started working for, for startups, it was really my attempt to get into technology kind of through the, the side door, if you will. And that's what, what led to... Uh, my now 25 years plus spent working with SaaS software companies. It's a great story. And I know that early on, you joined the founder of, of Procore, Tui, really early on when he started this business and worked side by side with him to grow it to now almost 2,000 people strong, which is just an amazing feat over the last 15 years. And I know that you guys have a, an interesting story as to how you met. Could you tell us a little bit more about that meeting? Well, I met Tui uh, really because I had moved to Santa Barbara, California from the Bay Area, where I had done my first company, Digital Think, which was a, an early pioneer in, in cloud computing. Uh, we did e-learning for Fortune 1000 companies. And my wife told me uh, that we were moving to Santa Barbara, which is how a, a lot of people end up in, in Santa Barbara, especially coming from other areas of, of the country. She was right. It was a, a great place to raise our kids. And part of that uh, was meeting Tui because our kids, my daughter and Tui's son, were in preschool together. I came down, joined the Santa Barbara community and happened to meet Tui, who had this very early stage services business around improving the operations of construction companies. He had figured out that he could put a Microsoft project construction schedule online and make that accessible to all parties and was starting to get traction there. But in order to scale, needed to fundraise. So I wrote the first offering document for Procore and joined Tui. And it looked to me like a company that had some potential 
to really bring more information to people who are out there on the job sites. As it turned out, it was probably a horrible business idea at the time. And and I say that because uh, if you think about it, what we were doing was creating a cloud computing company for people who really didn't have internet access at their workplace. (laughs) Internet access at the job site, a construction job site, was an unusual thing at the time. And even then, it was still just Wi-Fi. This was 2004, 2005, 2006. The iPhone didn't come out until 2007. So those early years, we did not have product market fit. And we wouldn't get to a point where we had product market fit until really about 2011 or 2012 when uh, the iPad came out and tablets as a form factor plus cellular connectivity for smartphones, for tablets, that brought the data to the job site and to our ultimate end user who works on a construction site, not in a construction trailer. And that's when Procore really, as a company, became fundable from a, a VC standpoint and enabled us to embark upon this growth journey that that we've been on for the past five years. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about because even, you know, even 10 or 12 years ago, if you went to a construction site, you're probably just seeing piles of blueprints, handwritten paperwork and people coming and going and no real technology, like you said. I mean, what was the experience like of introducing tech into a non-tech environment like that? Well, tech existed in the construction industry, but it, it didn't really exist on the job site. Again, for that connectivity reason that, that I was talking about, I think that most technology that did exist was designed for the folks in the back office, the folks who were doing accounting and keeping track of all the money. And so when it came to project management, which is where Procore first started out, all project management systems were created as an offshoot of the accounting systems. They were client server based. There was no mobile capability to them whatsoever. So we found ourselves in the great situation of being the right company in the right place with um, the right technology that allowed you to do mobile applications. So a lot of things came together that were not due to any brilliance in terms of, of the early employees of Procore. It really was about having the right solution in the right place at the right time. And importantly, not giving up in those early years as we struggled to find product market fit. What really kept us going were the early reactions of those clients who did have connectivity on the job site, who could use us on their laptops with Wi-Fi from the job site trailer. Those reactions, when we saw those customers coming out of their seats and exclaiming about how being able to coordinate and collaborate on a construction project with all project team members, how that was going to change the way they did business, that's really what kept us going until we got true product market fit around 2011 or 2012. It really probably took a lot of tenacity on you guys' part to continue to push in like this world that didn't really exist. And it's really interesting to hear your story about that. I'd love to talk a little bit about just your view on self-awareness, because as a leader in these companies and starting companies from the beginning and raising them up to being strong and then you know selling your previous company and now you're working in a company that has grown probably three or four times as big as the one you did before. How important is your own self-awareness and how does that play out for you as a leader in a hyper-growing organization? Well, I think from a standpoint of self-awareness, as you're scaling, you want to lead by example. You want to lead 
from the front. People look to the, the leaders of a company and they're looking for what's acceptable behavior. I and mean, Procore did not have a defined set of values until we needed to hire for cultural fit rapidly. Before, when you're a 10-person company or a 15-person company, before you start scaling, you can really get everyone involved in the hiring decisions. And you can say, this is the type of person we're looking for. And, and all those early employees understand when you use the shorthand language uh, of the organization, what you're looking for. But as you enter into this phase of scaling, you have to uh, really sit down and define your values. And those have to be values that not only should the organization be willing to live according to those values, but you as a leader have to be willing to commit to those values because people are going to be looking to you and saying, okay, do we really hire according to the values? Do we fire according to the values? Will we sacrifice right. someone who is a great performer on every uh, metric except culture fit? These people exist in almost every company. It's the person who's you know, wickedly effective at what they do and they get tasks done faster and they're able to turn in that, you know, great spreadsheet model or that fantastic PowerPoint deck and really wow the client and book a lot of new business. But they do so by trampling over everyone around them or being a, a toxic partner, if you will, in the workplace. And so you have to be as a leader, you have to be willing to really walk the talk and not tolerate that kind of behavior um, within your company. So I, I think from a self-awareness standpoint, it's what are you willing to sign up for in terms of not only personal behavior, but how you manage the company as well? Yeah, it's a great point. There's so many entrepreneurs who are looking for sort of that secret sauce or the tips or tactics to actually be able to do something. But in reality, it's more of a mindset. So in your mind, just knowing what you know, how important is it for the mindset of an entrepreneur to ensure success? No, I think the mindset is everything. I mean, the mindset is you have to believe in, in your product or your service that you're selling. Uh, you have to believe in something that is much larger than you know what you can see as an easy short-term goal. And it, it has to really go deeper than something that is just financial rewards. I, I haven't really seen anyone that gotten into a, a company solely for the financial rewards that has had yeah. long-term success. And it has to be about improving the world or solving a customer pain or solving a, a, a need in industry that speaks typically to personal experience. I would call out as an example, uh, Tui Cordemanche, Procore's CEO, has been fascinated by construction since he was a child. He was always that kid who ran to the construction site fence to look at the big yellow heavy equipment working. And as he became more experienced in the construction industry through his own general contracting company, and then he transitioned into the tech industry during the 1990s, and he became quite proficient in uh, writing software and being a software engineer. And then he combined those two things when he came back to see how inefficient the construction industry was around communication collaboration in the early 2000s. Those kind of stories and the path that those individuals walk is what makes a company a long-term success. He had the love for construction. He wanted to improve the industry. And he understood that technology was a way towards that improvement. That is a 
mindset that is completely different than I'd like to make 20% more in salary next year. Yeah, it really does make a difference, doesn't it? When someone's really bought in like that, him dreaming at the fence as a kid, you know, it's really great to hear these kind of stories. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Hello there, it is Todd and Maddie. Hi. What are we talking about today? Talking about Shea Boom Audio. This is a cool place. This is where we recorded a couple of our episodes. Yes, this is a very cool place. We have been, we ate breakfast tacos. It's incredible. It's in a local Austin-based studio, a historic one called Tequila Mockingbird. And Shea Boom is an amazing uh, place where they record pieces of audio that did not work well in the movie filming. Yes, that is right. And if you go to their website, you might actually think you accidentally went to imdb.com because there are so many movie titles there, all of which Shea Boom Audio has worked on. So if you need a great local studio with an awesome set of engineers, check out SheaBoomAudio.com. Outside of your career, you know, how has this entrepreneurial mindset impacted your personal life as well? I think entrepreneurs typically, they're problem solvers. Uh, they see ways that things can be improved. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I always thought it was just a, a normal part of life that everyone walks into a grocery store and tries to optimize the layout of every aisle and, and the, the service levels and what the process, processes would be and how signage would be done. Uh, apparently my wife tells me I'm completely wrong about that. That's not the way that most people think, but it's, it's, you'll see this need to improve among entrepreneurs. You'll see, um, a a need to make the world at a, a different place, um, to really exert some sort of, um, improvement over their environment. If, if you don't feel that, in other words, if you're okay, just going to work and, you know, clocking in and, showing up where you're supposed to be. And then your biggest satisfaction is in life is what happens outside of the workplace. Then, you know, that's just a different mindset than most of the entrepreneurs that, that I've met. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You know, there's this idea and this, this big topic going around in the corporate world and in the entrepreneurial world around emotional intelligence. There's a lot of new entrepreneurs coming on the scene, a lot of younger ones, a lot of next generation and even a lot of stepping in at a later age to become an entrepreneur. How do you see emotional intelligence really changing the way that entrepreneurialism is in the next generation of entrepreneurs? I don't know if it changes it. I, I think that people become more aware of it. One of the areas that I like to focus on in terms of helping out younger entrepreneurs is uh, market validation of their business models. And market validation really is about empathy for your user, for your customer, for your ultimate buyer, and going out and actually trying to pitch your business idea to people that have a pain that needs solving. And if you can't uh, have the emotional intelligence to develop that connection with your potential customer so that you can actually understand what is it that they're trying to overcome, what is their day-to-day life like, how could you improve something in their lives that they interact with to the extent that they'd be willing to pay for it, 
if you don't have at least that degree of emotional intelligence, then I don't know how you're going to be as successful an entrepreneur as someone who, who does have that ability to really strike that level of, of empathy with their intended customer. That's a nice spin on it, especially thinking about empathizing with our customers and the people around us. So um, it's probably a good, really good learning for folks who are listening. If you could go back to 20-year-old Steve Zom, what, what would you tell him? I would say network more, get out there and, and know more people. I, I'm a, a big reader. Um, I learn a lot through reading uh, different books and articles. And I think especially in this age that we live in today, the temptation to read is, is even stronger than it was when I was 20 years old. Really, what I've learned as a reader is don't believe everything you read. Okay. Uh, I think the truth is as... Uh, Steve Blank, the uh, author of uh, Startup Owner's Manual, as, as Steve Blank says, the, the truth is not in the building. The, the truth is out there. And I think the truth, whether it's uh, a new product idea or making connections that can help you in, in, in business, that can help you with uh, mentoring for new professional skills, that comes from one-on-one -on -one relationships and people that you meet in the real world. So, I would have. Uh, I would encourage anyone who's starting out their career to go to events uh, such as Startup Weekend or uh, anytime there's a speaker that you can get out and see in person. Because the people in the audience that are watching that that speaker who may be talking about entrepreneurship or startups, those people are the people who might be your future management team. They might be your future employees. They're obviously thinking along the same lines you are in terms of starting a company. So get out there and talk to them. Don't stay at home or, you know, in that coffee shop with your headset on, you know, doing Google searches and, <laughs> and reading blog posts. Yeah. Um, or or even, you know, listening just to podcasts. You you need to get out there and, and have those relationships because you never know where that connection is going to come from that leads to your next business relationship. Such an important lesson to learn for anybody, not just your 20-year-old self. Exactly. I see too many entrepreneurs that do exactly what you say. They just sort of sit there and kind of hope that the tech they're building or whatever is going to get them to the next step. But those networking relationships are so, so important. And they're hard for, you know, like introverted people, but there's ways around that and, you know, take someone with you and so forth. So, yeah, it's really good advice. The last thing I'll ask you is just, um, you know, you're super busy running a company, lots on your plate, but what is a current passion project for you? Um, just it could be around work, that's fine, or maybe something out of work that you're just passionate about right now. I see the, the next phase of organizational effectiveness around the strategic advantage of having a strong and positive corporate culture. People are looking for meaning in their work. They're looking for purpose in their work that in times past may have been filled more so by a tightly knit uh, family or a very closely knit community. Those things are becoming harder to find as people uh, spread out around the world, as people migrate from their homes into uh, different countries or different cities to live. And so they seek that meaning that may, and that, that sense of community, that sense of belonging, it comes from work. And if you as an entrepreneur can't provide a, a feeling of teamwork, a feeling of close-knit community within your company, I don't know how you attract the very best people 
or the people who have the energy because they're at the start of their careers and they're wanting to develop and learn, how do you get them to come work for you if you have a culture that says all that matters here is the, is the money that you produce? Yes, you have to be great at selling. You have to be great at producing revenue. But there's got to be something more than just those revenue results. There's got to be a feeling of greater mission than simply higher numbers than we did the prior quarter. I think companies of all sizes, not just startups, are dealing with that. For me, the passion project is really about speaking about this truth, communicating about that, teaching where I can, and encouraging especially younger people to choose companies on the basis of culture and not just on the basis of a logo or a business model. Yeah. Just one follow-up question to what you said. You, you mentioned the word culture there at the end. How do you create a great culture within a company? I mean, Procore has an amazing culture. And if you go and do any research on it and look, you guys win awards and all sorts of things around culture. But how do you create that as an entrepreneur and as a growing business? I think it's surprising if you look at Procore's culture, the only thing that we've done differently, I believe, if you define culture as what is it like to work there, we've simply been very intentional about it. We've paid close attention to what is the experience like from the moment that I, as an employee, walk in the door, what does it feel like at Procore? How do people communicate with me? How am I treated? What are the base values at Procore? It's ownership, openness, and optimism. What are the base values that a company uses to hire people, to train people, and to manage people? So all of those things combine to really produce this experience called going to work. And if you think of it from that standpoint, what can we do to make this experience of going to work have less friction, enable our employees to do their best work, provide our employees with the skills and the training they need to be knowledgeable so that they can do work in an autonomous fashion to give people the why behind why they're being asked to do something, for example. If you are intentional about it, any company can create a great culture. So many companies have great cultures, but they don't leverage them. So many companies have cultures that are okay, but could be great if they just paid a little bit more attention to it. I don't think it's that difficult, which is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it, because I think it's not an easy fix, but it's definitely able to be fixed in nearly every company I've seen or improved in those companies that already have great cultures. I think sometimes it just gets lost in the shuffle and, and people don't pay attention to their cultures as, as they should, because they don't regard the culture as uh, what I think it should be regarded as, which is it is a strategic advantage that no one else in terms of your competitive set, no one else can duplicate it easily. Very well said. I know that you guys have worked really hard to create that culture at Procore and it shows. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the session. 